Hello. Good morning. Hey, a couple things. Um, Last week, I just kind of shared a little bit larger picture vision, kind of where we are as a church, and just recognizing for some of you who are new to this place, this community has gone through a lot of changes over the last two and a half years. Um, We used to meet at the Arvada Center, setting up and tearing down, um, and then COVID, and then we we did Zoom church, and then we did house church, um, and then we did picnic shelter church, um, even when it was really cold. Um, we did, um, we met at another church uh, in their gymnasium, and then we bought a church building, and then um, this last summer I went on sabbatical, and there's just been a lot of like changes, and who are we, what are we doing, what, is, what does it look like to be Restoration Covenant Church, and so um, I just want you to know that I feel those uh, things as well, um, and we are really working hard right now on leaning into kind of where God wants us to go as a community, and what does this look like for us long term, trying to figure out how to utilize this space well, and, um, and to do all the things that God called us to do. And so um, I'm, I'm just saying that out loud for me and for you to just recognize there's just been a lot of change. And to have patience with us um, in, in jumping on board and being a part of what God's doing. And there's going to be more of that coming here in the next weeks and months. Um, I also wanted to share a couple other things. Um, we're going to take our offering, I think. Yeah, we're going to take our offering during this time um, of me sharing a few things. And so um, one of those uh, things is uh, next Sunday... Uh, we are going to be gathering here. It's a fifth Sunday. It means kids are going to be with us. We're actually going to be talking about family and community together. Um, and then that evening, we would like you to come back. I know. Twice being at church, right? Um, but we'd love for you to come back because we're throwing out like a big chili cook-off fall thing next weekend. And this is a chance for you to like, you know, just come and meet people um, to, you know, try to win the chili cook-off, um, you could do that. Um, you could bring friends, family, whatever. It's going to be a lot of, there's going to be fire pits outside and a lot of games for kids um, that don't involve the fire pit. Um, just wanted to say that out loud. Um, I'm filtering. And then, um, <laughs> and then uh, it's just going to be a great time. So I would encourage you, yeah, you've got to sign up, though. Help us uh, know how many to expect. A number of you have already signed up for chili and things like that, um, bringing candy, all that kind of stuff. But just it helps us to just get an idea, even if you don't bring anything, how many to expect. And so we can have tables and chairs and the whole thing, all right? The other thing that we're, we're actually looking for is someone to uh, jump on our pro presenter team, which is the team that does all the slide work on Sunday morning. So uh, Randy's in the back. Raise your hand, Randy. Randy's a total fill-in today um, because um, he needed to be. He just stepped up to the call. And so, but this is a great way to serve our church while not missing out on the gathering. So if you want to be a part of, actually that person is very much a part of what's going on up here. They're a part of the worship team. And if you'd like to be a part of that, uh, talk to Trent who, if you don't know who Trent is, we're dressed exactly the same, except for without the hat. So, um, 
But let me pray. We got lots to do. Let's get to work. Father, thank you for this gathering, this community. We show up in this place with so many different things in our lives. Um, but we're asking for this next moment for you to uh, help us to settle into our seats, settle into our hearts, um, to be willing to hear maybe even some challenging things, some difficult things. Maybe this next moment's a, a, a push that many of us need to see our world and our community differently and our role within it differently. And, and really our community, our gathering, our church's role differently. Would you be a part of this in every which way? Amen. Remember a few weeks ago, I talked to you about a little boy named Julian. Julian was born to a pretty wealthy family, and he ends up becoming the emperor of Rome. The problem is, is that his uncle, who was a Christian, killed his whole family. And Julian became uh, known as Julian the Apostate because he rejected uh, the idea of Rome becoming a Christian nation. He was so frustrated and so angry at how his family was murdered um, that he began to push against uh, what Constantine had done and make Christianity a state religion. Well, around that time, there was a guy named Basil. I know, sounds tasty. <laughs> but Basil uh, also grew up in a wealthy Christian home. He was, he was put through education. Um, he, he, he did education at a bunch of different places, but he ended up um, becoming the bishop of the church. And this is how they kind of structured the organization of their church. They had different bishops in different places. And he became a bishop. And he was primarily in Caesarea. Caesarea is a coastal town um, of the Mediterranean. And Basil was especially known for his commitment to uphold justice and to show mercy, especially on the behalf of the poor. Like he had a huge heart poor. Even though he grew up wealthy, he saw the plight of the poor. Um, and so after assuming office as bishop, and this is right around the time of Julian, he founded a community to care for the destitute, and, and it took on the title of the, Basil, the Basiliad. Um, they called, they named it after him. Um, that wasn't his choice, but they called it the Basiliad. And it was a place of refuge that grew so large, it became its own city. It became its own city outside of Caesarea. And people, you know, flocked to the, they heard about this place that, that cared for the sick and cared for the poor. And they came from all over the Roman Empire. And so what Basil did is he would appeal to the rich, the elite in Rome, to fund what was happening at, the, at, this, at this little city that I keep butchering the name of. And, um, 
And unfortunately, what happened is, is by the fourth century, when Christianity became the state religion, Roman elites um, started to uh, change their stance on how they did things. Instead of um, giving money, they started to, um, the circumstances, they started to get approval of wealthy people. And they viewed wealth not as something that was to be dispersed, but was something to be um, shown as a sign of God's favor. And so there was just this huge shift, okay? But Basil started preaching. He started preaching uh, to the rich to repent of their greed and their materialism, to avoid luxury, and to push their resources towards the poor. This is a a, a quote from a sermon that, that Basil, he's called Basil the Great in church history now. He says this, but now your possessions are more a part of you than the members of your own body. And separation from them is as painful as an amputation of one of your limbs. Had you clothed the naked, had you given your bread to the hungry, had your door been open to every stranger, had you been a parent to the orphan, had you made the suffering of every helpful person your own, what money would you have left, the loss of which to grieve? So I cannot help but think that a lot of Basil's heart was influenced by a passage in 1 Timothy chapter 6. I'm going to read this passage. It's a little longer, but this is going to set the tone for where we're going today. He says, these are the things you are to teach and insist on. And this is Paul writing to Timothy, who is a pastor of a church. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching... They are conceited and understand nothing. They have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between people of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the sight of God who gives life to everything and of Christ Jesus who, while testifying before Pontius Pilate, made the good confession... I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. 
God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and might forever. Amen. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. I can't help but think that was in Basil, like to his core. Today we're going to be talking about biblical justice and generosity. And now with some of you in the room, you hear the word justice and you freak out. Because it's been very much uh, politicized and there's been so many hot button issues when it comes to justice in this world. Whether it's race or economics, there's just systems and brokenness in our world. During the summer of 2020, we... um, we wrestled with some of the racial injustice that was coming to the surface. And, and to be honest with you, <laughs> um, we had some people leave our church because they said, you didn't go far enough talking about this. And we had some folks leave our church because they said, you went too far talking about this. So I felt like we'd nailed it. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but this is just a more of an overarching conversation about justice. And so with a lot of fear and humility, I'm going to press on. And I want to start with this. This is the question I want to start with. What is biblical justice? Or better put, what is the justice that we find in Scripture? Let's just start there. So I have four volunteer readers today that are going to come up, and you guys can just come up, and I'm going to make space for you so you can stand up here and know what it's like to stand up here in front of people for a little bit. So, and I want you to line up first reader, second reader, third reader. We practice this. Okay? Okay. Now. Before we get into reading scripture, just give him a hand, right? I mean, come on, yeah. Uh, Before we get into reading scripture, um, the two words that we're going to be looking at are Hebrew words. The first one is sedeka, and the other one is mishpat. Can you say this with me? Sedeka, mishpat. All right. And usually they're coupled together. They're like, they come in a grouping. And the words are righteousness and justice, okay? And we are going to go through some of a few of the scriptures that have this in it. Reader number one. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. A, Micah 6, 8. Yes, this is a famous, famous passage. In scripture, prophet Micah. And, and what you'll hear, uh, you'll pick this up here soon, to act justly and to love mercy, Sedeka and Mishpat. Okay? 
This is what God wants. This is what is tov. This is what is good. This is what it looks like to function properly. Okay? The word tov, if you're just joining us, um, is best translated as functional. It works. It is, um, Yahweh looked at his handiwork at the beginning of creation and said, it is good. And then he looked at human beings and said, it is very good. It is functional. It is like a well-oiled, tuned machine. It works how it's supposed to work. Um, my definition of, of tov is, is this, uh, not to mean merely pleasant or pleasurable. It means capable of, capable of, presently engaged in the process of, and destined for completely filling, fulfilling the divine purpose for which it was created. That's what tov means. Here's another place that we're going to read. Here's our second reader. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Isaiah 6, 17. Did you hear it in there? Learn to do right. Seek justice. Sedekah, Mishpat. 200 times in the Old Testament we hear Mishpat. And this couplet is called Hendiatus. It's like a potent, it's like a, a coupling of words that each word together when they're put together, actually makes a stronger case, makes a stronger emphasis. So, law and order. Anybody watch that show? <laughs> the last 35 years or whatever. Um, you know, that's when we put, it's not just law, it's law and order. It's health and safety. It's, these are uh, a hen diadus. So that's what this is in Hebrew scripture. Um, and it goes all the way to the roots of Israel. Reader number three. Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the ways of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Genesis 18, 18-19. The way of the Lord by doing what is Sedekah and Mishpat. And I love in this passage, it says, for I has chosen him so that. That, word, you know, that phrase, so that, is really, really important. It sounds conditional, and it is. In some sense, his, it's, I will bless you, by te- and this is how you will be blessed, by teaching your people how to do righteousness and justice, Sedeka and mishpat. For his grace, it's kind of like God's grace on Abraham, and it was grace. But it also comes with Abraham doing something with that grace. Saved from something and to something. To treat people equitably. The same mishpat is basically in this context, the same mishpat you would treat the person within, you treat the person without. Okay? And so it's taken further in the Old Testament, and when you get into the prophets, and Tori's going to read a passage from one of the prophets. Um, learn to do right, seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. Perfect. Isaiah 6. He says, learn to do right, seek justice. How? 
by defending the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, please the, plead the case of the widow. Well done, my readers. You guys can, yes. And, you know, next week, I'm going to grab a few more of you to do some of that. So, so why are these same groups in Scripture over and over again? Because these were the folks that had no social power. The fatherless, the orphan, you know, the poor. If there was an invasion, the people who had no standing were the most vulnerable. And so what the prophets are saying over and over again in Scripture is that the way God judges a group or a society is by the amount of their sedeka and mishpat. The way God feels about how a group is doing has only to do with this. How a group treats the vulnerable. Basically, in all of the Old Testament, justice and mercy, righteousness and justice, the quality of your faith will be judged by the quality of justice in the land. And justice in the land will be judged by how the weakest and most vulnerable groups in society faced while you were alive. So how are the most vulnerable doing in your society? How are the most vulnerable doing in our society? To do justice and live righteously are the same things. And Jesus confronted the Pharisees with this all the time. And he would say things like, hey, you know a lot. <laughs> but what about your Sedeka and mishpat?" Now, living the way of Jesus will always push us towards the most vulnerable people in our society. And that is super clear when you read the Gospels. If you live like Jesus, it'll push you closer and closer to people who are vulnerable. And if we are taking Jesus seriously in his teachings and his practices, that will push us towards the most vulnerable. Uh, Bruce Waltke wrote this, righteousness is a pattern of life, not merely specific acts. What is at stake is personhood, not merely performance, disposition rather than mere deeds, character behind and beyond conduct. This kind of life and behavior has a religious dimension as well as an ethical one. Righteousness refers to the moral quality that establishes right order, and justice refers to the moral quality that restores that order when disturbed. The righteous are willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage the community. The wicked are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. And I think this is really, really important for us to let seep in what we're not talking about is, um, and these are not bad things, but these kind of one-off little behaviors where we, um, where we serve the vulnerable. It's actually what he's saying is it's, it's not a, a behavior, it's not an ethical thing, it becomes a pattern of our lives. It, it, it's an overflow of 
the intent that God has for us in Tov and, and the desire to return to that. So that when we see something that is out of order, following Jesus will seek to bring it back into order as a pattern of life. Okay? So be ready, though, because what he says is it will make you feel disadvantaged. It will make you feel like you are lowering yourself, that you are becoming less, that you are uh, losing. If we do this, we're going to feel disadvantaged. Parker Palmer wrote this, we cannot do good by standing back and pulling levers that drop bounty on people who need it. Right action can be only an immersion that involves us in relationship. And so often, guys, so often, we just, that's what we want to do. It's like, is there a lever we can pull that will fix those folks over there? Right? We'll drop bounty on them. No, he says, this will cost us. We will feel disadvantaged. The righteous will disadvantage themselves to bring things back to order. A few weeks ago, a couple weeks ago, I had a meeting with a couple other pastors in the community and the principal at Arvada High School. And she's the new principal at Arvada High School, and she follows Jesus. And she sees this need here. She was at a really wealthy school, and she chose to leave that wealthy school and come be the principal at Arvada High School which serves kids um, who are on the lower end of the economic ladder in Arvada. Extremely lower end. In fact, they have a hard time, just so you know, they have a hard time having all the families fill out their economic survey because some of those families who are here without documentation are afraid of getting found out. And they feel like if they fill out that form... Um, that someone's going to come knocking at their door. The problem is, is unless they fill out their form, the school doesn't get what they can get from the state as a Title IX school. So for the last six years, this school has not been able to get above the certain percentile to be awarded extra funding from the state. And they finally did this year which is incredible. So all that to say is there's a ton of needs right across the street in our community. And the question inevitably comes up for us, what does, who is the most vulnerable in our society? And we could sit around and have conversations about who that is. Is it the homeless? Is it the disabled? Is it the immigrant? Is it the refugee? Is it the single mom? Is it the, there's just so many places, Right? But I think there's two paradigms that Jesus gives us to kind of give us a picture of who is the most vulnerable in our society. The first one comes from Luke chapter 10, and it's the story of the, the Good Samaritan, okay? And it's a great story. I'm not going to go through it. I'm not going to unpack it all today. But it has to do with um, a stranger helping somebody in need, and that stranger happened to be somebody who wasn't inside the people of God. It's a powerful story when told right. 
Now, who is my neighbor in that story is the question. Because the question gets asked of Jesus. So who is my neighbor? And, and basically, without going into all the details, is who's in front of you? Who's in your path? Who's in your world? Who do you live by? Who are you in relationship with already that needs your help? I have a friend of mine I've told a story about. He's disabled. Um, he's an amputee. He had a, an appointment to go to the doctor to, fix his sh- to get his shoulder looked at because he's having a hard time getting from his chair into different places. And in order to get to the doctor, because he lives alone, he has to get a cab to come, a taxi to come get him. A handicapped taxi. And there's not many of them. Not enough of them. Because it probably doesn't make enough money. And the taxi came an hour and a half late to pick him up. He missed his appointment. And so he asked me, hey, I have no other way to get to the doctor this week. And um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's going to take half my day. But he's in my path. He's in my world. Jesus' life model is an incarnational model, and that means that to be like Jesus in the sense we, we show up with our presence, show up with our lives, show up in people's worlds. The second kind of paradigm that Jesus uses is not as friendly. And I titled this Dividing the Room. It comes out of Matthew chapter 5. It's the story of the sheep and the goats. This is a great little Sunday school, you know, um, felt board kind of thing. If you're not familiar with the felt board, I grew up with the felt board in Sunday school where they'd have this board and then they'd have these little characters and they would paste them to the board and they'd move them around the board and it was a great way to visualize the Bible. This is not a felt board. Well, it can be. Second part's rough. (laughs) He says, come... You who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Okay, for this group, the righteous... Um, here they are, they're a group that did not even know that they were serving Jesus. They were just serving. They did not know that it was Jesus who was hungry. They just saw someone hungry and gave them something to eat. And it starts out in verse 41. Depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. This is the felt board part that's really rough, right? Uh, For I was hungry, you gave me nothing to eat. 
I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was, in, I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did not do for the, one of the least of these, you did not do for me. So this second group also did not see, right? It's just neither group saw that it was Jesus. But one group just did things and the other group didn't. And this is an important text for getting to the heart of Jesus in regards to justice and generosity. See, Jesus inherited a tradition of Sedekah and Mishpat, of care for the poor and as a non-negotiable demand for the people of God. He inherited that just by being Jewish, part of the people of God. Now, Jesus has a sermon on that is like his magnum opus sermon. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. It's in Matthew. And he talks about three, in a sense, non-negotiable practices for following the way. And these are interesting because he just assumes that if you're Jewish, he's making this sermon happen in a very Jewish community. It's up in Galilee. It's the Sermon on the Mount. There's mostly Jewish people there. And he's just making three assumptions for them. First of all, he says, when you fast... He doesn't say, like, if you fast, think about doing it like this. He's like, when you fast, so it's already a part of their culture, when you pray, okay? And the last one is when you give to the poor. So Jesus is making the assumption that when you fast, when you pray, and when do you give to the poor? And then he has teaching behind each of them. He's like, when you practice your tzedakah and your mishpat, your righteousness and your justice, don't bang the gong and announce it. Give quietly. And then he says something really interesting that we're going to get to in a little bit. He says, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Which is kind of a weird phrase. And we're going to talk about that here in a second. But he's taking this from the prophets. He's saying that our lives are not just about our private prayer and our integrity and how we behave but how we stand with vulnerable people. He says, you can actually make the case, and I think you can make the case throughout the Bible, that God favors the poor. Like, it's really interesting. And this is a hard teaching for us. But God actually favors the poor throughout Scripture. And I think Jesus actually took it further. I think that Jesus kind of presents us with this idea that not only does God favor the poor and the vulnerable, but that God is in the poor and the vulnerable. Or put it another way, if you take all the teachings of the prophets and the, and the teachings in the Old Testament and Jesus and you put it all together, it could be said, and we sang this line about the kingdom of God and it could be said that no one gets to experience life in the kingdom now or in the age to come without a letter of reference from the most vulnerable. Uh-oh. We're good, yeah. That was just like the best line of the whole sermon, though. So, I mean, I'm just kidding, Levi. 
it's like, it's like we don't get to really experience the kingdom of God and the kingdom now and the kingdom to come without a letter of reference from people who are needing it, needing us. So part of your generosity the last couple of years and during the COVID season, we did a thing called Acts 4, and we did this, um, this kind of deal where we were trying to figure out on the fly as a church, like we don't have rent anymore at the Arvada Center because we're not renting it because we can't meet. And so we, we're not like in need of finances to keep our staff paid and things like that. And, and we didn't take a, a PPP loan from the government and all the things. And, but we had all these people in our church that were like, I'm getting these checks from the government. And like, what, what do I do? Like, I don't need this, but other people do. And so we, we created this Acts 4 fund. And many of you contributed to that fund. And some of that fund went towards uh, people who were laid off in our church and people, you know, close to people in, in this community, but also to people outside. We had a a lady that needed a new furnace that we found out about. And so we, we got her a new furnace and we had some people connected to our church to help put that in and, and, and on and on and on. And we had this one guy who I found out through the, the crew at Arvada High School that was homeless um, with his two sons and they were living in a, a week-to-week motel, okay? And, and we connected with him and and he was actually, he, has a, he had a job lined up and he was about to sell all of his tools that he was going to need for that job. And I'm like, don't sell your tools. You know, we'll take care of your, your rent. And so for weeks, we, every week, I went down there and used our church debit card to pay for his motel. And over time, we got to get to know him. I got to know him and his boys. And, and the lady at the front desk is like, this is nuts. Like, and she loved them and cared for them and got them special deals and all these different things. It was incredible. Well, I hadn't heard from him for a year. He got his own place about this time last year. And he reached out about a week ago, and he was just a simple text. He said, I just want you to know we've been in our own place for a year and we're doing really well. My boys are, you know, flourishing. They're at Arvada High School. And he's like, if it wasn't for your church, I don't know where we would be. And that's a really cool thing. And the reality is, is here's where a lot of us get stuck. We are smart enough to know that there are systemic issues that keep people in poverty and keep people vulnerable. We know that. But you would be wrong to let that get in the way of what you can do, right? Like, we get it. There's these big issues. They're scary. If you watch the news, you're just like, oh, my gosh, I just want to, (laughs) like, I don't know what to do. I don't know where to start. I was with a group of people that started an organization a long time ago called Save Our Youth. I was hanging out with them last night. They did a little presentation to a few of us pastors just about this opportunity to mentor kids it's just a beautiful, it's a beautiful, simple thing um, that's available for the people of God to jump into. And you, you mentor a, a, a student, a kid, different age groups you can pick from, like to be a part of their life. And you can do it once a week. It's just a really cool thing. And we get overwhelmed on where to start because there's such big issues all around us. But I think we just need to start with what Jesus said. Like Jesus didn't say, um, for I was homeless and you bought me a house. 
Or I was in prison and you, and you, uh, you broke me out of jail. No, he, he says, no, I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. Just like a simple bot, just like my, myself gives yourself something because you need that. It's very basic. I was hungry and you fed me. But these are all actions where we personally get involved with our body, with our whole self. We get involved. And it needs to be said because this is a political season. It's not, I was hungry and you voted for someone to take care of it. Okay? <laughs> um, because they won't. Um, and they never in the history of ever have ever done it. <laughs> so if you're just getting all like, man, if I just get that right person in office, everybody's going to be good. The practice that followers of Jesus would, be well to, would do well to step into our generosity and simplicity. Generosity and simplicity. Now, here's the thing. I just want to recognize this. All these things we've been teaching on the last few weeks have been kind of like these spot teachings that could all be a series in and of themselves. I know I'm not going to get to everything, but there's a dangerous kind of mixture, a dangerous alchemy of, of when we serve people, but we do not change the way we live, okay? That we keep getting more and more and more stuff, and then we serve people on the side. Um, so this is why I've kind of combined generosity and simplicity a bit. It's this long journey for us to, to get our heads around of, of going down, which is really hard in our culture because our desire for more can literally choke out our desire for generosity. It, it can choke it out really easy. 1 Timothy 6.10, remember, uh, uh, this is Paul telling Timothy, tell the, the rich people in your crew um, these things. And so uh, Timothy, um, hopefully, and I think probably took it very seriously, and I'm taking it very seriously as well. He says, for the love of money is the root, not the root, but a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. I just want to zero in on wandered from the faith as we finish this up. It's not wandered from believing in Jesus or wandered from going to church. Um, faith is another word for allegiance. And, and in some ways, it, it, money can pull our allegiance to something else. And it's a weird interplay of faith and works. And I I always um, uh, wrestle with this uh, myself but, uh, because it says, for by grace you've been saved through faith and it's not from works, it's a gift from God. You know the thing. And uh, I just felt like Joe Biden right there. You know the thing. Um, but, but, then he says, but then he says, Paul says, but I've created all these things for you to do. Okay? I've created all these things for you to do. And, and the problem is, is our, if our allegiances change how we live, then wandering away from Jesus could be a money thing. 
And we can become so concerned about making money and spending money and growing money and saving money that we ignore the basic requirement of following Jesus, which is, you know, following Jesus is 101 is the poor and the vulnerable. And so 1 Timothy 6, 17 says, command those who are rich, and Paul is saying to Timothy, these, these, are, these are probably in your church, in this present world not to be arrogant or to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. And we know that, right? It's so uncertain. But to put their hope in God, which, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment, this is contentment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share in this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age. I think this is just a nod to this. They will experience the kingdom here and in the future. Um, so they may take a life, hold of life that's truly life. Here's the reality. You are rich. I am rich. Um, we are rich. Some of you in this room are like, but I don't feel that rich. And I'm like, I get it. <laughs> um, I can't afford a house. I get it. I know. Um, but this idea of being generous and willing to share, that it one day will become a joy. It one day will become something that you yearn to do. Maybe not at first. You know, last week we talked about obedience. We talked about this like idea that to make all of life obedient to Christ. You remember this conversation we had? And that uh, I just want to remind you that when you you do what Jesus did because you agree with Jesus, just to, that's not obedience. Um, that's you doing what you want and think it's best and you happen to agree with Jesus. Obedience is you doing what Jesus did even if you don't understand or even agree. That's obedience. You do it because you trust Jesus and his way of life and his life that's on offer for us. You trust his love and you trust his wisdom. You trust his authority in your life that he is your Lord and Savior and he is in place of God and you are not. And you obey. Sometimes we obey, we act in obedience before we even believe. It's this idea of sometimes our bodies have to tell our minds something different. Sometimes by, by going places and giving and letting go of things, letting go of our money and helping people, it, it only is down the road that we begin to experience the life that God has on offer. And we must look to Jesus for this. Embody generosity. A Jesus who's go, who goes really that far for us who became poor, who became human. A Jesus who becomes naked and hungry and thirsty on the cross and a, 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 a God who deserves riches and power but made himself obedient to death on a cross, right? He gave his generosity. God's generosity leads us to generosity is the point. So how do we begin to practice this? Three quick things, and then I'm going to ask you to do something that I've never asked you to do before. It's not that big of a deal. <laughs> First one is maybe put together a family vision for generosity. Maybe as a couple, maybe as a single person, um, maybe as a family. Like, what does it look like for you to be a little more generous? And it might mean something goes and something puts in that place. 
okay? What would it look like to value generosity as a family, like a personal vision? What would have to change? The second one is this, and I think this is really important for us suburbanites. We have to change our paths. I think so often we uh, get in a routine where we actually go about our day, our week, our month without seeing anybody in need. We choose not to look. We choose to avoid certain intersections or certain places. Um, but my encouragement is for you to change maybe a simple driving routine or a simple walking routine or a simple shopping routine. The second thing I would just tell you, maybe the path is something a little different. Maybe the path of your week and how you spend your time needs to change. There are, there are some incredible things, ways that you can reposition your body to be in a place that helps someone who is vulnerable. One of those places is something called Victims Advocates. I've shared this with you before. There's a group of people that advocate for victims of domestic violence, things like that, in real-time situations, meaning there's a group of people that are on call in this city and in neighboring cities that show up at all hours of the night and day to help people who have been victimized understand what they have in their disposal. You sit with them, you care for them, they're crying, they're usually bewildered, they're in shock. I come across victim advocates all the time when I'm riding with police officers because if we get to a domestic violence situation, VOI or victim advocates shows up and they sit with the victim and help them. Help them uh, like see a path forward that potentially they didn't see. It's, it's a huge ministry of love. That's just one place, like, but that's just one thing. You would have to volunteer your time. You would have to disadvantage yourself to go through training, to be on call on certain nights of the week, whatever it is. That's just one of hundreds of ways that you could put yourself in the path of somebody who is vulnerable. And the third one is this. You know that whole left hand and right hand thing? Jesus talked about them in Matthew chapter 6. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. I've, I've pondered this for a long time in my life. And, um, and some of you parents know what it's like to try to teach your kids how to tie their shoes when they're little. I mean, can you literally describe what your left hand is doing and what your right hand is doing because they're doing different things, Right? And in some ways, this is what Jesus is saying. It becomes something that is just automatic. You can't explain it. You're just doing it, right? And I think that that's the heart behind what the people of God need to see as generous and mishpat and tzedakah. That it's just so automatic. When something is in front of you, when there's a need in front of you, you are self-aware, but you're not self-absorbed. It's automatic. It just happens. It's impulse. It's habit. And I think that's the hope and the goal, right? That as a individuals and as a community, we just, we just, that just becomes the natural thing to do. 
So what I'm going to ask you to do is actually something I've never asked you to do. We are not a church that does kneeling a lot. I grew up in a church that did a lot of kneeling, up, down, up, down. (laughs) Some of you are like, oh, I can't kneel, and that's okay. If you're not physically able to kneel, uh, maybe just sit in your chair with your hands open. But I'm going to lead us in a prayer of generosity. And what I, the reason why I want us to kneel is I just want you to get a taste of the vulnerability of just feeling just your knees on the floor, the uncomfortability of that. And in a sense, there's a small little picture of what it looks like to lower ourselves, disadvantage ourselves in our bodies for others. Some of you are like, this sounds cheesy. Okay. Do it anyway. (laughs) All right? So let's kneel, and I'm going to lead us in a prayer. Heavenly Father, you tell us that godliness with contentment is great gain. That we bring nothing into this world and we take nothing out of it. We who call Jesus Lord devote ourselves to resisting greed, which plunges the human heart into ruin and pierces it with many griefs. We're determined to practice generosity with free hearts, fixing our hope on God and not on uncertainty of wealth. We desire to be rich in good deeds and willing to share all that we have, laying up for ourselves treasure that will not decay but will shine in the age to come. Show us how to do this. We pray these things in your name. Amen.